0: So we'll be continuing this morning with the series on unqualified that Kevin's been preaching on and uh, you know we're hearing about all these Bible uh, people that were unqualified but you know that was then and they felt unqualified themselves and so do we in much of what we do and sometimes when we're asked to and I know I do. So this morning I'd like to introduce Chuck Hess, Uh, Chuck's been here before. Uh, however, it was uh, with a lot fewer people. It was in the middle of the pandemic, and so it was mostly a live stream deal. But, Chuck, we really welcome you this morning uh, to our to our service. to the message that God has put on your heart to bring to us. So, Chuck, for for uh, maybe some of you remember, and I don't know how he was introduced before, but uh, Chuck's an entrepreneur. He owns two businesses, and I'm sure that keeps you busy and full uh, busy life, and you kind of deal with boutique hotels uh, as part of what your business does. But uh, he and his wife, Elizabeth, have two children. They live in Centennial. And uh, Chuck went to school originally, for his bachelor's in Oregon State. We were laughing about some stuff this morning earlier, um, between him and I and some of the Oregon State Beavers. Anyway, uh, he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration. And uh, but in the recent years he's been felt a uh, distinct call to shepherding and instructing uh, others in biblical truth so he's currently a student at Denver Seminary, and that's probably your connection with Kevin over the last couple of years, that you're doing it. but he's currently a, a student at Denver Seminary, uh, working on his master's in divinity degree, so you know, we'd like to welcome Chuck back um, like, like I said before, we're going to continue with that same theme, so Please give Chuck a welcome, and let's wait to hear for a
1: Thanks, guys. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back. Yeah, last time I was here, uh, it was when things just sort of opened up again. Everybody was still masked, and I think you guys were two or three services in uh, just meeting again. It, it's, it's been a while. Uh, so good to be back, and definitely under different conditions. It's good to good to see everybody's face, whole faces, you know. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I met uh, Kevin actually randomly at a Starbucks one time when I was hanging out with another pastor friend of mine, and I was considering going to Denver Seminary at the time. And then we chatted, and then he gave me the thumbs up and said, "Yeah, do it. It's good good school." So that's how um, we know each other. So sort of through Denver Seminary, but, uh, but sort of not, so it's been, been good. Um, you know, that last song, uh, it, it got me, you know, I, uh, last time I sang that song, one of my professors, and actually an uh, ex-pastor at um, Resurrection Fellowship, just down the street here, uh, passed away suddenly, just this last term, he was one of my professors, and, uh, and we sang that song, like on his, when we all came back together, so it was a, kind of cool to hear that song again but um he was a he was a mover and a shaker in this community and uh his name was felix gilbert and uh he he died um he had a stroke apparently um and he was literally serving his wife on his knees because she just had knee surgery when he suddenly collapsed so you know that's kind of how you want to go i think is serving uh serving people just like jesus did so so that was a great song thank you for for that throwing that in the mix there um So that video, you know, we see all the different unqualified people, you know. uh, Moses was not a good speaker and so on and so forth. Well, today we're going to talk about Matthew. And Matthew, well, he was a tax collector. I mean, that's just not good. Nobody likes tax collectors. Turns out people didn't like tax collectors back then. And I don't, anybody like tax collectors now? Anybody? No? Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody likes tax collectors. So we're going to... um, camp out here in chapter, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, but before we get started, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father God, I'm uh, grateful to be able to speak from your word today. I've got to pray that uh, those who are with us today here physically and also online, uh, that you can move the hearts in this congregation uh, to do great works here in this community and throughout Colorado and the world. Father, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing to you. God, we love you, we need you, and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Before we get started, I think we have a, a a song queued up that I want you guys to listen to, and it's sort of Matthew's theme song, so go ahead. And you guys can see the lyrics here, so if you can't understand the words. Oh, we don't have the song? Oh, okay. Oh, that's okay. Well, it's, it's the Beatles, Taxman. You guys remember that song? Oh, it's the Taxman, right? And the lyrics are great because it talks about you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Actually, go to the next slide. My favorite verses are at the end. Um, if you drive your car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet because I'm the Taxman. Yeah, I'm the Taxman. So everybody's probably heard this song before from the Beatles, great song, I love it. Um, This song was written when they protested some progressive taxes they had in the UK at the time that would have taxed the Beatles themselves about 90% of their income, so that's a lot. Nobody likes the tax man. So today we're going to talk about Matthew, who's also known in the scriptures as Levi, and we'll look at that here. But let's start here in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Here he is, the tax man. The tax man. Um, Matthew, also known as Levi. We know that Levi is the same person because he's in two parallel passages in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. Let's go ahead and real quick skip over to Luke chapter 5. I want to show you. Uh, just this passage, just so we can look at it real quick. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, use your neighbor's. If you don't, pull up your phone. Whatever you got. Uh, Luke chapter five, <clears throat> in verse fourteen. Actually, let's start here. In um, um, no, actually, verse thir- verse uh, verse thirteen is good. Fourteen is good. Oh, Wait, this isn't the right spot. Where is it here? Oh, yeah, I we'll messed that up. Oh, verse twenty-seven. Sorry, guys, I have the wrong uh, passages written down. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So this is where we see Levi. Maybe it was the Mark Mark scripture. Sorry, guys, bear with me here. I apparently wrote down the wrong passage here. Mark chapter... Don't worry, I'm getting somewhere. There's a purpose to this. All right. Here we go. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. So these are the two parallel passages where we know that Matthew is the same guy as Levi. But well, what's interesting about Mark's account is that he says it was Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And we also know that James the Younger, there were two James that were part of the 12. There was Peter, James, and John, like the, you know, the, the big James. And then there was James the Younger. And that was James, the son of Alphaeus. So if you're a Bible nerd or a or kind of a fledgling scholar here, is this the same son of Alphaeus that James is? And is this the same mother who's Mary? This The mother of James, the son of Alphaeus, that was at the cross when Jesus died? Probably. And they were all from Capernaum. Very, very cool to see that this family all turned together to follow Jesus. We see this communi- communal, uh, communal thing where they all worked together to follow Jesus. Pretty awesome. But uh, that's just some you know, spiritual pocket change there for you if you want to go study up on that. I think that's pretty, pretty neat to see the, the connections there. But we have to take a second here and explain kind of what tax collectors looked like back then. Because nowadays, what do we do? We go on TurboTax or or whatever, and we fill out all our stuff, and then somehow we get a tax return, or maybe not, maybe we owe some taxes. Uh, But tax collectors back in the ancient days were were vastly different than tax collectors are today. In fact, to have the kind of tax system we have today is quite sophisticated. Uh, We have to have all these computers and databases and so on. And in Roman times, they didn't have that kind of sophistication where they had social security numbers and so on. What they would do is they would do what's called tax farming. And the Greek word is talonis. And this required some pretty good record keeping, and that's what Matthew did. He was probably a very, very detailed record keeper and probably a really good um, math whiz who could do calculations in his head really quick. But what they would do is these tax farmers would sort of prepay to the Roman Empire whatever taxes they wanted to collect. And then these tax collectors would then subsequently have the rights to collect taxes from whatever various province they were over. And they w- the way they made their living is they taxed a little extra so they could keep it for themselves, and they give the rest to the Roman Empire. And that's how they, they made their money. And so there was a couple skills that required, like I said, they required math. Matthew was probably also literate. We take literacy kind of for granted in, in today's modern world. We all know how to read and write. But back then, it was very, very rare to be literate, even in the upper classes. So Matthew not only was probably literate, but he could read and write in shorthand. And that was very useful as a tax collector. But um, I'm going to read a, uh, just a, it was a book I was reading by Edgar Goodspeed about Matthew. A very good biography. Um, but he, he a quote here from his book, it says... But Talonis, right, a tax farmer, really means a tax buyer who bought the rights to collect taxes and probably employed others to do the detailed collecting, making what they could for themselves as a matter of course. The difference between what he paid the government and what what he was able to collect from his remuneration for his work, and this privilege was sometimes and perhaps often abused. So Matthew probably took a little extra, and maybe a lot extra. And the Israelites knew this, and other Roman citizens knew this, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it. They felt betrayed. So what did the, how did the Jews view tax collectors? Well, I'm going to give you a few passages. You can write this down if you want to go look later. But Mark chapter 5, in verse 43 through 48, tax collectors are equated with pagans. Pagans were really just the Romans that, that worshipped the pantheon, all the different gods you know, Jupiter and all that stuff. Um, so that's what tax collectors are equated in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, 32, 32, tax collectors are equated with prostitutes. They're put side by side. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, tax collectors are equated with gluttons, drunkards, and sinners. In Luke 18, verse 11, tax collectors are equated with robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. So do you think the Jews liked tax collectors? No, they did not. They, in fact, considered tax collectors traitors. The Israelites, the Jews at the time, they believed that the Romans had invaded their promised land, the land that God had given them. And they wanted to kick the Romans out. In fact, the Jews had this idea that the Messiah would be a military leader and would kick the Romans out and they'd be able to retake their land the way they were supposed to be, just like the Davidic kingdom when they controlled all of Israel. So they were, they hated the Romans. And so any tax collector who was both a Jew and working for the Roman government to take their money and just give it to the Caesar, they were not fans. They were not fans. They considered them traitors. And so this is where Matthew comes from. Matthew comes from this stock, a hated, a despised traitor, It's something I don't think we can really wrap our heads around. It's, it's hard for us to draw a parallel in modern times, but the one thing I could think of that was something maybe similar that we can wrap our heads around was imagine you were a Jew living in Nazi, Nazi-occupied Poland during World War II. You see, the Gestapo, who were the police for the Nazis, they would gather up the Jews and send them off to concentration camps, which we know about. But how did they know that? Typically, there was one Gestapo per kind of region. There weren't very many and yet they were portrayed kind of through um uh what's the what's the word um where the nazis you know kind of brainwashed everybody to think of it propaganda that's the word i was looking for through propaganda they made people think that the gestapo were everywhere and they were all knowing but really where they got all their information was from what we call informers they would be other germans or other nazis who would then rat out where the jews were hiding and that was what happening in World War II. And so really, you just had a few options. You could either hide, like Anne Frank or something, right? You could run away and go to a different country, or you could try and change your identity and and hide. And so the Gestapo relied on these informers to, to rat out the Jews, to then send them off to concentration camps. So Jews during World War II must have felt betrayed on another level when they would find out that one of their neighbors are the ones that ratted them out and sent them off to a concentration camp. This kind of betrayal may have been similar to how first century Jews viewed a Roman tax collector. So I just want you to wrap your head around that and get this idea of betrayal, of traitorness. that's That's how Matthew was viewed by the Jews. This tax collector Matthew was clearly unqualified. He was despised. So let's break down what what happened here in Matthew chapter 9. This is the call of Matthew by Jesus. It's just one verse. You ready? As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. In the Greek, that's one word, in Aramaic, it's one word. He told him, and Matthew got up and he followed him. That was it. I like to think that maybe he just got up and left the money on the table and they just left, which is pretty radical. But that's the radical call that Jesus calls every one of us in this room to do. It's just get up, leave the money on the table, and follow Jesus. Even though you know you're unqualified, even though you know you're despised, and maybe even some people in this room are traitors, that's okay. We can still follow Jesus because that's the radical call that, that happened here. Do you wait for the right time to serve the Lord? Are you waiting for the right time? You know what I mean? In what ways, right? even right now, I can't even think about this for myself, in what ways right now are we holding back from serving God so that we can instead live maybe a more comfortable life? Because we love comfort in America. Don't think that you're exempt because everybody in this room I think is American. I, I, I mean, we live here, right? So... We love comfort, but it's a radical call to follow Jesus. See, one of the things about Matthew is that he, he was a tax collector. He had some money. He was set. He could buy his big screen TV and his boat and all that fancy stuff, but he left it all so he could follow Jesus. If you know anything about Jesus, he was not exactly a rich man. He didn't exactly have a lot of cool things, a lot of cool toys. You see, God uses the humble and the despised. God uses the humble and the despised. Let's keep reading here. Verse 10. So this is immediately after Jesus calls Matthew. It says, "...while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came came and ate with him and his disciples." When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. See, so he, gave, he gave the Pharisees some homework to do. I don't know if they ever reported back to him what, what they learned, but This is the homework he gave to him. This is the calling of sinners. I don't know everybody in this room, but I can confidently say that everybody in this room is a sinner. Anybody want to protest that? No? Okay, okay, that's what I thought. Everybody in this room is a sinner. And yet God, Jesus here, calls sinners to follow him. You know, Matthew is the writer of this gospel, obviously, and he's kind of talking about himself, which is kind of funny. And I think that Matthew was clearly pointing to himself in this um, story here in saying, hey, I am a worthy gospel writer. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And you're thinking, wait a minute, wouldn't that disqualify you? Wouldn't that make you unqualified to be a gospel writer? And Matthew is saying, absolutely not. Because Jesus calls the humble and the despised to follow him. He was unqualified. But because he was humble and despised, Jesus was able to use him. Now, one of the questions I was reflecting on was, what happened to Matthew? How did he become a tax collector? Back then, you wouldn't just wake up and decide, you know, I think I'm going to be a traitor. I'm going to cheat all my own people out of money. I don't think he just woke up one day doing that. Also, we know that Matthew wrote, I mean, this, this is the first book in the New Testament. It's the first gospel. And it's laced with theology. It's, this book is so deep. And it's written to Hebraic you know, uh, Christians or Jews at the time. And so, it, it's the one gospel that uses the term kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of God. And why does he do that? Well, because the Jews didn't want to use the word God out of respect, and so he would say the kingdom of heaven. So it's clearly written to, to, uh, to Jews, and it is laced with quotations and references back to Isaiah and fulfillment of prophecies. It's incredibly d- deep in its theology, in its writing style. And so where did Matthew get this? This despised, dirty tax collector, this traitor, how did he suddenly write this amazing gospel? And there's a lot of, you know, debates and hypotheticals we can come up with. You know, did Matthew just sort of fall on hard times and just go become a tax collector? I like to think, and once again, this is just Chuck speaking, not the scriptures. This is purely a hypothetical. I like to think that maybe Matthew was incredibly gifted. And he became what was called a Talmudin. A Talmudin was when you were young, when you were about 12 years old, after you went through your bar mitzvah, You would then be chosen by a rabbi to follow them and then learn the ways and become a rabbi yourself. And so they would follow these rabbis and they would take what was called their yoke or this particular rabbi's way of interpreting the Mosaic law. They would take their yoke upon them. That's why Jesus says, my yoke is light or my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because Jesus was that rabbi who's saying, no, no, no. No more of this like nitpicky legalistic, we're gonna, I'm gonna teach you the way of following God. Anyways, the Talmudin would then be chosen by a rabbi and they would follow them. Maybe Matthew was looked over by the rabbi and was never followed. Maybe he was with a rabbi, but then the rabbi somehow did him wrong and then he left. So he was hurt by a a ministry guy, if you will, by their pastor. He, he was maybe hurt. I don't know if anybody in this room has ever been hurt by anybody in the church before. I certainly have. And if you haven't, well, just stick around. It'll, it's just a matter of time. And you know why? Is it because churches are screwed up and we should get rid of them all? No, it's because churches are full of people. And people are the problem. And as long as there are people in the church, they're going to hurt each other. In fact, if you find a perfect church don't go there because you'll just screw it up, okay? Just just stay out of it, okay? (laughs) So So, what happened to Matthew? I don't know. But I like to, in my little imagination, think that maybe he was done wrong by someone in the ministry, in the church, a paid lead pastor or whatever. And so he, in his bitterness, maybe became a tax collector because he wanted to stick it to the his people, because he was tired of those rabbis doing him wrong. I don't know. I don't know what happened to Matthew. All I know is that if that is the story, I can relate. Because I, I struggle living this text out. This little, just these few verses. This is not a long passage that we read today. These few verses are deep. They're thick. Because they call us to do something radical and great in our lives. And it's hard to do. We like to just sort of incrementally do things day by day. You know, get a promotion, mow the lawn, make a good dinner. You know, incremental things. We don't like to do, okay, get up, sell everything, and go move somewhere and do something great. Or go plant a church somewhere. It's hard to do. One of the ways that I really struggle with this passage is that I forget that I'm despised. You know, sometimes I think I'm a pretty good guy. And I think the world would think that of me. They'd think, oh, Chuck's a pretty good guy. You know, I'm not a felon. I'm not, you know, strung out on drugs. You know, my kids are relatively well-behaved. You know, like it's, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. And the people of the world, they like to talk about that. Can't you just, just be a good person? Right? You guys ever had conversations with that with people who are atheists or agnostic? They're like, well, I don't get this whole church stuff, but I just I just try and be a good person. I, I fall into that too. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to be a good person. That's kind of all that I really need to do as a Christian, right? Is just be a good person. So I fall for this. And I think I'm a pretty good guy. But I forget that I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Another way that i kind of mess up on this passage and struggle with it is that I fail to be humble. One of my root sins is my reliance on my own flesh. You know, I consider myself pretty savvy and smart, and so I can kind of figure things out for myself. I don't need to kind of rely on God. I can kind of figure it out. And so I often rely on my flesh more than I rely on God. And when I rely on my flesh, what it does is it it means that I'm utilizing the Holy Spirit a lot less, and that means that I'm not allowing God to work in my life to the degree that he should be. So I need to really, as a a person, as a sinner, I need to learn to rely on God a lot more and a lot less on myself. Also, I've been hurt pretty radically by religious leaders as well. Maybe some of you guys have too. So I am very unqualified too. I'm unqualified to be up here right now. This is purely the grace of God and it's only through the Holy Spirit that I'm even able to to say anything to you guys right now. And that's the reason why I like to camp out on the scriptures because I don't really have much good to say. You know, I was ostracized by a church one time pretty badly. And uh, I've had to learn how to move on. And I've also had to learn to look back and realize that some of my stances that I took, and I can tell you guys the whole story some other day, I don't want to spend all day here talking about it, but I stood up for what was I thought was right and then I was sort of banished because of it. And in hindsight I realized, well okay, what I did was good and so then I wanted to self-justify myself and you know become really self-righteous and like, oh those guys, they did me wrong those sinners and I'm awesome. But I had to remember and I had to realize and kind of reflect and realize that because of my leadership position and how long I had been a part of this church I sort of had a chip on my shoulder and I felt like I was owed some level of respect or that people should just change the way of the church or fix things because of who I was and because of what I had done. And that's, that's not right. Like, no, the church that I was in should have repented because they were in sin and because they needed to change their ways and become more like Jesus and his community and follow the way of Jesus and it had nothing to do with me. But I kind of had that in my head. And that's one of the ways that I can really struggle with this: is I can think about the ways other people have done me wrong, rather than realizing that I've done people wrong just as much, just as much. Let's look at another scripture: First Corinthians, chapter one. First Corinthians. God will transform us with these passages so that we can live out these passages. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. This can be spoken of just to I mean, this, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, but he could very well have just been writing to, to peace community right here. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, let is, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Sometimes we think that we are despised when we're not. So this is one of the other steps. So we can kind of swing the pendulum the other way. So like I struggle with, I'm not despised, I'm a good guy. Sometimes we think we're terribly despised. Here's an example. Many times I hear people talk about how badly persecuted they are in America. They're like, oh man, everything's so screwed up and I'm a Christian and I just get persecuted. People go, oh, you Jesus freak or whatever. Oh, I'm so persecuted, I'm so persecuted. No, 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 you really aren't. Tell that to your brothers and sisters that are in the mission field in Hindu or Muslim countries who are radically persecuted, have their property taken away and even sometimes killed. Tell that to the first century, brothers and sisters, who were put to death in the arena for spectacle. Tell that to your Anabaptist brothers and sisters who were slaughtered during the Reformation times. That's persecution. So sometimes we can think we're despised when we're not. Another thing is we, sometimes we think that we're humble when we're not. You know, humility isn't just simply keeping silent and keeping a tight lip. Humility is grace under control. It's speaking out, but, you know, really doing it with humility. So the key here, because we know that God uses the humble and the despised, right? So how do we do this? Well, the key is to not become despised, but to realize that you already are despised. We don't need to seek out persecution or something in order to become despised. We just need to remember that before a perfect and holy God we are all despised. We are all despised. We are all sinners. We need to remember that we are nothing. Do you think that you're something when you are nothing without God? Do you think you are something because you've been around for a long time, because you have great influence in your church or even your denomination? These are the thoughts that I know, like I say this because I know I struggle with them but we have to remember that we're despised and we have to be humble before the Lord for God to use us. Because that's what happened to Matthew. Matthew chose the humble route, realizing he was despised, and he followed God. He left everything. He left everything. The future of this church, the future of the church in the 21st century is a humble church. And this church is going to change the world. I promise you. The future of the 21st church is one that drops everything and follows Jesus, just as Matthew did when when he was found despised and hated. The future of the 21st church is also a charismatic church, one that relies on the Holy Spirit, one that's humble to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. You might think, oh, but we're just a little tiny peace community church over here in Aurora. But we can change the world by just being humble and realizing we're despised and allowing God to use us. God is going to do great things with this church. The future of the 21st church is an Orthodox church, one that doesn't try to bend or sway with society, but falls in line with Scripture and established orthodoxy. Matthew knew that following Jesus, he knew what it would mean. He knew that he'd probably no longer be wealthy. He knew that he'd probably have, no longer have the power that he had or the backing from the Roman soldiers. He gave it all up to follow Jesus. We have to steep ourselves in this, the Scriptures. Steep ourselves in this daily. Daily. And fervently pray to hear what the Spirit is teaching us. And in this way, we'll maintain the standard that God has established for His church. Remember, this is God's church, right? Because God uses the humble and the despised. You know, Phil talked a little bit in the announcements about, uh, what what are they called, mandates, whatever they're coming up? Yeah, so... I am fully aware, and I don't know if some of you guys are, if you've had time to read any of this kind of stuff, but I, I, I pray for this church a lot, believe it or not. I don't know if, you know, even though you guys haven't seen me since August, I pray and think about this church all the time. And I'm well aware of the turmoil that's going on in your conference and even your denomination right now. But now is the time for Peace Community Church to stand strong. Now is the time. Now is the time for us to realize that we are despised. It's time to be humble. It's time to rely on God. It's time to return to orthodoxy through the scriptures and us together as a community. We have to be the future in this community. Peace Community Church needs to be the future. Hence the term, right? Peace Community, right? Be the future here in Denver. Be the future in Colorado. And be the future in the world. And all it takes is knowing that God uses the humble and the despised. Amen. Thank you.
0: I'd like you all to stand for the Next hymn Amazing Grace.